As someone has said, sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. My friends, there is an eternal difference between churchianity and Christianity. Traditionalism and ritualism characterize churchianity, and there is far too much emphasis in our culture today on churchianity and far too little on Christianity. Another way of saying that is that there is far too much emphasis on traditions and far too little on Christ. Traditionalism comes from our cultural and sociological backgrounds rather than from the Bible. Traditionalism is less about what God says and more about what man says. Tradition might tell me to wear a suit and tie in some churches or preach from a particular translation. God doesn't tell me that. Man tells me that. In another culture, I would wear something totally different. Traditionalism stresses the cultural trappings of Christianity, the political alliances, the social forms, and the church norms that we have come to associate with faith in Christ. Traditionalism takes root when our culture becomes more important than Christ, saving our society becomes more important than following our Savior. When our faith becomes little more than traditions, beware. Someone might say, what's wrong with a little decency and decorum in church? I like our traditions, so why is it so wrong to have traditions? Well, there's nothing wrong with traditions. We all have them. As many have pointed out, today's innovations are tomorrow's traditions. The Jesus freaks of the 1960s became the executives of the 1990s. Contemporary worship services were radical in the early 1980s. Now contemporary worship music is normal in the church. There is nothing wrong with traditions. We all have them. Churchianity is wrong when we hang on to traditions without reason, form without substance, and ritual without reality. The prophet Zechariah tells us in chapter 7 that outer ritual without inner reality is empty vanity. Let's set the scene. Look at Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month, and abstain, as I have done these many years? It has been two years since Zechariah's eight night visions. In those two years, a lot has happened. The temple is half completed now, Jerusalem and the surrounding communities are bustling with business. The people are prosperous. Things are looking good. God is blessing his people once again after all those years in captivity. They are rebuilding their country and enjoying their national identity. And it's at this point that a delegation from the town of Bethel 
comes to Jerusalem to ask a theological question of the priests and prophets. Some translations don't have the word Bethel because the Hebrew word Bethel means house of God. So they translated the word rather than taking it as a place name. Those translators treat it as if it refers to the temple as the house of God. It is probably best to take it as the town name because there is no time in the Old Testament where the temple is referred to as Bethel. In the 300 or more times that the words house of God are used in the Old Testament, including in verse 3 where we have house of the Lord, it is always a different Hebrew construction. The question that arose among the leaders of the town of Bethel had to do with the fasts they were observing in the fifth and seventh months of each year. These fasts were not fasts ordained by God. The Day of Atonement was the only fast officially ordained by God. These are man-made religious observances. They are, in short, traditions. Where did they originate? Well, these fasts developed during the captivity in the land of Babylon. The fast of the fifth month was a reminder of the day when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by fire in 2 Kings 25. The fast of the seventh month was the anniversary of the assassination of Gedaliah, who was governor of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 41. The Jews also had two other fasts in the fourth month and the tenth month. Both of these fasts also memorialize the fall of Jerusalem. These were traditions which they had been celebrating for 70 years. But now the temple is almost rebuilt. They are back in the land of Israel as a nation. The country is enjoying prosperity once again. Why weep and wail when we're having so much fun? Must we continue these depressing religious rituals from the past? The next generation sees no purpose or value to these old re religious traditions. So why keep doing them? I can hear the traditionalists in Israel now. What do you mean do away with the fasts? You people are liberal. Your progressive views will ruin our nation. We have always done it this way, and our fathers have done it this way before us. Well, God answers the question in the next verses, and God's answer was not what they expected. They expected to be told by the prophet whether or not to continue the tradition. That is what most of us want to know when we look at our traditions. Do we keep the traditions or not? But God cuts to the heart of the issue about traditions. Outer ritual without inner reality is empty vanity. God's answer involves two principles. First, ritual without reality is selfish, verses 4 through 7. Why do you fast? For whose benefit do you fast? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, 
say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? The point God is making here is that their fasting was for their own selfish reasons. It was not for God's benefit any more than their feasting was for God's benefit. Fasting, just like feasting, had become a tradition. It was done for their own selfish reasons. Why would anyone fast for selfish reasons? Isn't fasting an act of self-denial? How can fasting be selfish? Well, there are two ways which God identifies here that we can fast for selfish reasons. One We fast for selfish reasons when we are sorry for our situation, but not our sin. We fast for selfish reasons when we are sorry for our situation, but not our sin. The Israelites had been in captivity because of their sin. God was disciplining them. Yet they fasted not because they were concerned about the sin that put them in their sorry situation, but because they hoped that fasting would make God change their circumstances. They fasted to push God to make them comfortable. Fasting done for self-pity is just as selfish as feasting done for self-pleasure. When I was doing premarital counseling, I would ask couples, do you kiss to get or to give? My question to you in this message is, do you fast to get or to give? You say, neither, I don't fast at all, couldn't you tell? (laughs) Well, friends, the point I am making has to do with any religious tradition, not just fasting. It's all of our traditions that we develop. I grew up in Pakistan, and the Shiite Muslims have a religious ritual called the Festival of Ashura, where they cut themselves with swords and sharp knives on the ends of chains. They believe that by mutilating themselves, God will then hear their prayers. What about our Christian faith? Do we do certain religious rituals or follow certain Christian practices because we think that God will change our circumstances or answer our prayers because of it? Forget it, my friends. God is not some heavenly slot machine that if you push the right buttons, he will do you what you want him to do for you. That is ritual without reality. God wants us to be genuinely sorry for our sin not our situation, not our circumstances. Second, we fast for selfish reasons when we use tradition to purchase respect. We fast for selfish reasons when we use tradition to purchase respect. 
It is just as wrong to use religious traditions to gain favor with other men and women as it is to get God to do what we want him to do for us. God gave the fathers of Israel all this same information from his word, according to verse 7. They were prosperous, the land was plentiful, yet they turned his rules into rituals and so avoided obedience from the heart. If the fathers had obeyed God from the heart in the first place, then fasting would have been unnecessary. Using the church to buy respect from others is like fasting to be accepted by society. It is ritual without reality, tradition without conversion, faith without substance. In years past, our nation was very churchified. I mean that many people attended church because it was the proper thing to do. Attending church brought social acceptance and respect in the community. Church attendance kept up appearances. It was for show sometimes. I am always leery of politicians who publicize their church attendance for political gain or appeal to evangelical leaders to win elections. These are the markers of a cultural Christianity. Tom Rayner, a church growth consultant, in an interview in 2020, says, A cultural Christian is a person who comes to church for reasons of politics, business, or acceptance. In other words, they want to be culturally accepted. And he goes on to point out that church attendance is declining, largely because cultural Christians are the ones dropping out of church. Many Christians are frustrated with this decline, but folks, this is not bad. Churchianity is not Christianity, and we must not confuse the two. When churches marry themselves to social and political causes, they lose sight of the gospel that transcends all cultures. Millennials, in particular, have been dropping out of church. 59% of millennials who were brought up in the church no longer attend church. 35% believe that church does more harm than good. Yet, there are churches that are reaching the millennial generation for Christ. How? They focus on the gospel. The preaching is gospel-centric. Some millennials are coming back to church, but they want more plain-speak gospel and less religion-speak church meetings. They want more biblical teaching and less blaming of the culture. Millennials are dropping out of church because all they see is churchianity. They want authenticity, not religiosity. They want to see the focus on serving others and living out a genuine faith. Friends, Cultural Christianity is dead. People who know only form, ritual, and tradition will never understand what it means to be alive in Christ. For them, Christianity is a set of cultural traditions. For the real Christian, someone millennials want to see in church, for the real Christian, Christianity is a dynamic living experience. And that is why I say, secondly, 
that ritual without reality is lifeless. Ritual without reality is lifeless. Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 14. How do you know whether you possess reality or merely practice rituals? Let's look at what God told Zechariah were the tests for spiritual reality in verses 8 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Do you want to know if you are alive in Christ? Take these tests. The tests of spiritual reality are not about dressing a certain way, attending certain meetings, or performing certain religious functions. The tests of spiritual reality are all about our actions, not our words. They have to do with how we treat other people, and especially those who are oppressed and impoverished. And there are four tests of spiritual reality listed in these verses. Test number one, administer justice. The word for justice meant more than passing a judicial sentence. It meant establishing peace and harmony among people. Every member of the community has the responsibility to foster peace and fairness with one another. We all have a responsibility to act justly toward one another. Test number two, be loyal. The word translated kindness was a great Hebrew word meaning covenant loyalty. I like to call it loyal love. It was an attitude of love and loyalty which was to pervade basic relationships like marriage and friendship. Are you loyal in your relationships? Can people count on your loyal love no matter what the circumstances? That is how you test your spiritual reality. Test number three, never exploit. Never exploit. Oppression means exploitation. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor are easily exploited, easily abused in every society. One test of our spiritual reality is how we treat the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Do we use people for our own ends? Do we exploit people so we can make more money or protect our own self-interests? This is a test of spiritual reality. Test number four, never plan evil. The same Hebrew expression is used in Zechariah 8, verse 17, where it refers to planning evil against your neighbor. This is a spirit of vindictiveness, a spirit of hatred, which devises ways to hurt others. Hurt people are good at hurting people. It's called the cycle of hurt. Planning how to get back at those who hurt us is not a characteristic of spiritual reality. 
These are the tests of spiritual reality. People who attend church as ritual can go out and live as they please because there is no spiritual reality. But if you possess spiritual reality, you will be convicted when you violate God's rules for relationships with others. Having seen the tests of spiritual reality, let us look at the failure of spiritual rituals in verses 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flints so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Zechariah uses three expressions to depict the person who lives by religious ritual, by traditions, by culture, but who does not know spiritual reality. He talks about, one, the stubborn shoulder, two, the plugged ears, and three, the hard heart. The stubborn shoulder pictures an ox which turns its shoulder so that the yoke will not fit. We have a stubborn shoulder when we refuse to accept what God says in his word. We fight aligning our lives to fit what the Bible says, trying instead to make the Bible fit what we want to do and the choices that we want to make. The plugged ears picture a person who refuses to listen to what God is telling him. If you refuse to listen to God then you are guilty of religious ritual without spiritual reality. The hard heart tells us that there is no life. The person is dead to God, no matter what they look like in the religious community. This is the failure of religious rituals. Rituals, traditions, can never make your heart soft to God's hand. A hard heart is a dead heart. To paraphrase Oswald Chambers, the way our heart is hardened is by sticking to our traditions instead of to Christ. Cultural Christians care more about their church traditions than they do about God's word. Cultural Christians will defend the symbols of religion, but ignore the need for social justice. Cultural Christians will go to church, but refuse to obey what God says in the Bible. If church traditions become our priority, our hearts will become hard as rock, and our spiritual lives will become cold as ice. If all that binds us to the church are the traditions we love, then we are dead already. So we have looked at the tests for spiritual reality and the failures of spiritual rituals. Now we must see the results of spiritual failure in verses 12 to 14. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts, and just as he called and they would not listen, so they called, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, 
for they made the pleasant land desolate. The results of spiritual failure are serious. We feel the anger of God. God disciplines those he loves. Now, God's anger is not vindictive or petty. It is just and pure. God's anger is not just an expression of his holiness, but of his love. It helps to remember that God judges hard hearts. God never judges a soft heart. A soft heart proves that we are spiritually alive. It is when sin no longer bothers you that you should be worried about God's anger. A big mistake we often make is to think that God is angry with us for certain sins or certain failures. No, God's anger is upon us because of hard hearts about those sins. We all sin, every one of us, but, but God calls us to repent. God doesn't seek perfect people. He knows all too well that we are imperfect. We are flawed. We are sinful. What God wants are sinners with soft hearts toward him. So the first result of that hard heart is the loss of our listener, the loss of our listener. Once judgment starts, it's too late to stay the hand of God. He no longer listens to our cries. We lose our listener. One author writes, It shall be too late to cry for mercy when it is time for justice. One tragic consequence of a hard heart is that God reaches a point where he no longer listens. A hard heart by man toward God hardens the heart of God toward man. After all, let's face it, there are no second chances in hell. Hell is populated by people who cry out to a God who no longer listens to them. The second devastating result of a hard heart is the loss of our blessing. God had told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy that if they were disobedient, then he would scatter them among the nations. And that is exactly what Zechariah says happened to the nation. God had also told them that if they were disobedient, he would desolate their land, just like Zechariah says happened. God did what he said he would do if they had hard hearts. Now, we do not face the same material warnings that God gave to Israel, his chosen nation. But God is not obligated to bless us either unless we follow him, unless we obey him, unless we keep a soft heart toward him. If you are living in sin and are refusing to repent, then there is only one prayer God is obligated to hear from you. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. You cannot expect God's blessing in your life while living for yourself. Ask for God's forgiveness. Repent today. Never put it off, my friends. If God is dealing with you today, you may not have tomorrow. The most tragic result of persistent unrepentant sin is the loss of your listener. 
So don't delay. Repent and believe today. There comes a time when it will be too late. My friends, we the church need to repent of our churchianity and return to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our ministries. In his last address as president of the Southern Baptist Convention on June 15th of this year, 2021, just a few days ago, J.D. Greer stressed the need for churches to return to the centrality of the gospel instead of focusing on politics. He said, Anytime the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant and the offspring does not look like our Father in heaven. For sure. Remember, outer ritual without inner reality is empty vanity. It is dead. In the early 1700s, here in the American colonies, the church was dead in its traditionalism. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, spoke about how the young people were addicted to night walking and to something called frolics, which were devoted to mirth and jollity. Horrors, horrors. We laugh about such things today. But there was a deeper spiritual problem in the church than the young people's frolics. The church was devoted to a set of traditions a way of functioning which the young people rejected as empty vanity, ritual without reality. They turned away from churches that were all ritual with no reality. However, in 1720, a young Dutch Reformed preacher named Theodorus Jacobus Frelinghuysen arrived in New Jersey to pastor several dying congregations. He immediately began to preach on the need for conversion and new life in Christ. He preached the gospel. Great opposition developed from the other preachers and the other churches, the traditional and established churches. In fact, a 246-page book was written attacking him and his call to new life in Christ. He was attacked as liberal. Frelinghusen persisted in preaching the gospel. He cooperated in revival meetings with a young Presbyterian pastor named Gilbert Tennant, much to the dismay of the other pastors in his denomination. Gilbert Tennant established a little Bible school which came to be known as the Log College because the students had to sit on logs in a little country schoolhouse. The Log College only graduated a total of about 18 preachers before it closed for lack of funding from those dead and dying churches. Yet those 18 men went out as flaming evangelists taking the gospel to the colonies. And God poured out his spirit in a mighty way, and the result was the first great awakening, which swept new life into the churches. 
thousands came to know Christ as their Savior, and the dead churches came alive again with the fire of the Spirit of God as young people, young people turned to follow Jesus Christ. Mission works were started to help the Indians. The schools and orphanages grew out of the awakening as people began to put their faith into action instead of following their religious traditions. Graduates of the Log College later, of course, helped form Princeton University. God turned the church inside out and upside down when people turned away from their religious traditions to follow Christ. My friends, God can do it again when we repent of our churchianity and get serious about following Jesus.